Blog Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for this segment of the Gist of Freedom. I'm a genealogist stationed here in Kansas City, Missouri. My guest tonight is William Katz, author, historian, educator. We're going to talk tonight about one of over 40 books he's written in his most uh, current book in reference to uh, black Indians and their involvement in the abolitionist movement and their struggle for uh, escapes from slavery and etc. Welcome, Mr. Katz. How are you this evening? Good. Good to be talking to you. Okay. Now, you've written over 40 books. Uh, this is your latest book, and you are an educator. What got you interested in this topic? Like well, I, uh, it's a long story. I'll, but I grew up in a house with a father who had a great interest in jazz music and then the history of the people who made it, which were primarily African-Americans. And that led to him having books uh, both on jazz and running jazz concerts for noted musicians and collecting books on uh, African-American history. So I grew up with that. And then I started teaching in the public schools of New York City, New York State, and found that uh, this was back in the 50s. There was no mention of black people doing anything of any importance except being slaves and listening to their white masters. And I knew there was a whole different story. So I started writing my own materials and circulating them in my classes. And then that led to uh, finally some books coming out. And that got me to my book, Black Indians, which is a it's been out for 25 years. But what I've just brought out in the last year is a brand new edition that's expanded and up to date and takes the relationship between these two peoples of color that was really so important for hundreds and hundreds of years here in the Americas and brings it out in the light of day. I see. And um, in getting into your book and the updates on it, uh, what characters, uh, what individuals, I shouldn't say characters, but those individuals in the book that our listeners might might not be aware of uh, do you consider the most outstanding uh, individuals? Well, there are a number of them. Let me start with uh, a woman named Lucy Gonzalez Parsons, who was of mixed African, Native American, and Hispanic descent and was a slave in Texas before the Civil War. And uh, she grew up in Texas and uh, the, the Ku Klux Klan was riding high at that time, but she teamed up with a white man named Albert Parsons, 
who was uh, fighting the Ku Klux Klan through his newspaper, and they took on the Klan to such a point that in 1872 they had to leave the state, and they came to Chicago, and they continued their battle there for justice. Uh, Lucy uh, organized women of color, white women and so on. She uh, was a champion of overthrowing the present state of things so a more just and uh, equitable system that could be arranged. She called it socialism. Sometimes she even called it anarchism. And she and her husband took a leading part in that. And they actually, together with their two children, introduced the first May Day Parade in 1886, marching down in Chicago, and hundreds of thousands all over the world soon joined in those May Day Parades. She was uh, quite a fabulous character, great speaker. She wrote articles. Uh, when people criticized her for her views, she said, you know something, my people, she was referring to Native Americans at the time, we were here, we didn't have a capitalist system, and we didn't need it, so you people came here and imposed that on a talking to Europeans. Mm -hmm. And she also pr proposed at one point that when workers go out on strike, she told a group of uh, working people who were leaders in the labor movement, don't go out on strike, stay in on strike, and take over the means of production so the bosses can't bring in scabs and so on. And that's the principle of passive resistance that later on was adapted by, adopted by Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi and the uh, Hispanic uh, workers in the uh, <clears throat> California fields and uh, swept the world with uh, all the way up to the Occupy movement. It's a way of fighting without being violent. She was okay, quite now, a woman. Uh, Lucy uh, Gonzalez. Uh, and she Lucy was in Gonzalez Texas. Parsons, yes. Parsons, and there appears to be a connection to Mexico. So how did the Underground Railroad operate in Texas as those proponents of slavery were wanting to expand slavery into Mexico, um, which we now know as Texas. Okay. Well, let, let me explain first, as I do in the book, that from the time of Columbus, uh, the first people enslaved in the Americas were Native Americans. The Europeans would have enslaved, enslaved their grandmothers if they would have had a chance. But they took the first, you know, people that they found, Native Americans. So when Africans were brought over in slave ships, they were fed into a system that was already dependent on uh, Native Americans. So African Americans and Native Americans met in the slave huts of the New World, in the minefields where they had to dig for gold under for as forced labor, and in the plantations, picking cotton, uh, bringing in sugar, planting rice, and so on. So when you, by the time you you get to the the Texas, you get to Texas and Texas breaking off and trying to become a slave-owning state, Native Americans and African Americans have teamed up there as they have in other places throughout what's now the United States, in Florida, all the way out to the Pacific Coast, in uh, California, and so on. And actually, you, you have, uh, for example, uh, in the Mexican Revolution that overthrows uh, <clears throat> Uh, Spanish control, The uh, one of the presidents elected in 1829 is a man named Vicente Guerrero, and he's of African and Native American descent, 
And what does he do when he comes in? He writes the new constitution. He abolishes slavery. He abolishes discrimination. He ends the death penalty. This makes him, if you think of it, both the George Washington and the Abraham Lincoln of Spain, of, excuse me, of uh, Mexico. And, of course, Texas was a part of Mexican territory that the United States invaded in 1846 and took over. Okay. Uh, could you clarify for our listeners, uh, you mentioned that Native Americans were enslaved first and then Africans were brought over to this country, and uh, which introduced chattel slavery. Can you let our listeners know the distinction between slavery and chattel slavery? Well, chattel slavery that was instituted by the Europeans here is a slavery you could not get out of. You were born into. If your mother was a slave and you were born to that mother, you became a slave usually for the rest of your life. And uh, this was the kind of slavery that then took on a racial characteristic. Because while other people were enslaved in various ways, including white people who came over in a form of slavery called indentured servants, uh, they could get out in about seven years if they survived. And and after a while, Native Americans were, they weren't going to enslave them anymore. But Africans were kept in because chattel slavery also became a racial slavery. And And, and by the way, the reason that happened is because they wanted to split people who would be allies. Because in the early days of the Africans being enslaved, they were running off with indentured servants who were white. They were teaming up with Native Americans and so on. So the idea was to make it a racial slavery that pitted the rest of the country, anybody who was not African, against those who were enslaved and African. And when did uh, chattel slavery begin in this country? Well, we can trace it back. It's uh, it, it has a slow evolution, but it really starts in the 17th century, and it uh, gets more and more in, into law, although there are references all through the 17th and even at the 18th century of slaves escaping who are described as Indian or, Native, or uh, African-American. Did Wall Street play a role in chattel slavery, or with the inception of chattel slavery? Well, if we're talking about the business interests, say, of New York, including Wall Street, if we're talking about the merchants, <laughs> the the answer is they were heavily involved. <clears throat> the slave sh- uh, ships that were built in the, United, in the United States were built in New York, and they were built in New England. And the uh, New England and New York merchants in particular had a vested interest. They were trading with the uh, plantation owners. They were selling them the whips and guns that they kept control of their slave population. They were invested in them in, in, uh, in terms of insurance companies all the way up into the north and Connecticut and so on. And there was a uh, that, that's why there was very little op- political opposition to slavery because so many people with a lot of money and a lot of political clout in the North really had a vested interest in dealing in friendly terms with the the Southern slave-owning aristocracy. 
And what was this concept known as gun chattel? As what chattel? Gun chattel. You know, guns. Did that play? What role did gun makers? I'm not sure. I, I know what that what that phrase means. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, how did the role of slavery? Did that play any role? Uh, chattel slavery in the Revolutionary War. Well, it played a key role. Was uh, both sides found out they they wanted to rely on the slaves. The uh, British Lord Dunmore actually started the ball rolling. The, the Americans were not taking people of color into the Revolutionary Army, even though Crispus Attucks, a black man of native descent, was the first man shot in the Boston Massacre. But Lord Dunmore issued a call down in Virginia that any slave who escaped and came into his lines, he would free and get off somewhere to the West Indies, something like that. And when slaves began to take that seriously and families began to leave the plantations, people like George Washington said, well, we better open our ranks to uh, those people who are enslaved here. Well, they're gonna have, the British are going to have an army of slaves that have no interest in the United States and want to... Uh, you know, get their freedom, fight for freedom. See, because it's interesting what the the one group during the American Revolution that was fighting for the principle of freedom were African-Americans who were enslaved. The <clears throat> white Americans were not fighting for freedom. They were fighting for independence from England. And the English, of course, were fighting to keep the uh, states as their colonies. So this new violence in the form of the Revolutionary War um, increased the ability to enforce chattel slavery. Well, it, it first uh, weakened it because so many slaves escaped. And uh, it, it frightened the slave owners because it was, in a sense, a kind of first emancipation by, by violence. Slaves just picked up and left. As, as much as they could. Some of them joined the, the army of uh, George Washington. Actually, 5,000 black people fought in the Revolutionary Army, and others fought in the uh, Navy under John, uh, John Paul Jones, and, and others, uh, thousands more, fought for the British, but they all fought to get their freedom. But what, what happens is the chattel slavery gets nailed down after the war with the invention of the cotton gin, and if slavery becomes so important uh, in the South, because now there's a, a crop like <clears throat> cotton that can be sold all over the world, it becomes a, a huge investment. The North is invested in it as well as the Southern planters. When I say the North, I mean the bankers and the wealthy industrialists. <clears throat> and what happens in the South then, as this, the more this becomes financially a bonanza, the more they enforce slave codes, uh, keep people from freeing their slaves, uh, end humanitarian measures, and really uh, crack down and produce one of the worst slave systems that's ever existed in the world in the southern states. And Mr. Wilberforce of England, what was his role in the prohibition of slave importation, <clears throat> and which started the birth of breeding slaves within America? Well, he was he was one of the leaders. I wasn't prepared to go into the international aspects of it. I was uh, going to be uh, 
talking about the relation between Africans and Native Americans more. Okay. Now, and this relationship between Africans and Native Americans, not only in Texas, but I understand that there was a great um, influence in the state of Florida. You're absolutely right. In Florida, you had the greatest number of Africans and Native Americans joining together. To such an and by the way, let me tell you how it started. The Af- Africans were among the first explorers of Florida. They were enslaved in, the, in Alabama and the Carolinas, and they headed south, not north. This was an underground railroad that went south. And they got down there, and by the time of the American Revolution, a group of Creeks called Seminoles uh, had, uh, felt that they were ethnically uh, persecuted by their Creeks uh, friends, and they headed south, and the Africans welcomed them, took them in, and taught the methods of rice cultivation that the Africans had learned in Senegambia and Sierra Leone. And on this basis, the Africans and the Seminoles formed a new kind of multicultural nation. And what did that nation do? It fought off slave catchers and the United States Army for years and years. Actually, there were three Seminole Wars, starting in about 1816 and not ending, till 1858, just a few years before the Civil War. And for these 32 years, or whatever it was, the United States tried to conquer the Seminoles. They even bought Florida from Spain uh, so they could crush them. At the same time, the, the Seminoles with the black people, but by the way, some of the black people were leaders among them. We know about John Horse, we know about some others who were really key figures in the Seminole resistance. And as I said, this was a multicultural nation. So the Seminoles were as willing to fight for their black husbands and wives, daughters and sons as they were willing to fight for anybody else in the nation. They fought three wars. They moved their families out of harm's way. And actually, they uh, fought the United States Army, Navy and Marines to a standstill. And this is the greatest uh, military force in the Americas at the time. It was quite a feat. Now, many of them finally agreed to migrate to Oklahoma, but many of them are still in Florida, and they're saying, very simply, we never gave up. We never surrendered. You know, I heard since childhood that the Seminole Nation uh, never signed a treaty. Those Seminoles Mm -hmm. in Florida with the United States and were technically still at war. Uh, It's interesting you say that there were Africans in Florida and that Native Americans, or Native Americans, were escaping from Alabama, Mississippi, et cetera, going into Florida. So, have you found any evidence that those uh, Africans maybe came over with DeSoto? We 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 do know that Africans were in all of the Spanish expeditions. We know that they uh, were with DeSoto. We know they were with, with Cabeza de, ba- de Vaca. We know that they headed out into the southwest in various expeditions when Spain tried to conquer that. And we also know, most importantly, is that every time they were with these expeditions, they tried to escape. So some of them got away, and that's why you have Africans that were mixed with Native Americans out with the Apaches out in the west with the Native Americans and from California back to New York and up to the Canadian border. 
um, the, the, the Mohawks in Canada even took Africans and their uh, their leader and encouraged intermarriage. So th- this is a phenomenon that occurred just about everywhere where there were Native American people and African people, going back to, as you said, the original uh, Spanish uh, conquerors coming over. And you said there was a war. They were at war from 1816 to 18. Yeah, that was in Florida, yes. That was in Florida. Is that where Fort uh, Moses was established? And could you tell our audience a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Fort Moses was established by Africans in 1738. It was the first officially recognized African community or city, whatever you'd call it. It was a few miles outside of St. Augustine. And it was worked out. I, I have quite a bit about this in the new edition of Black Indians. It was worked out between the, the Spaniards who were trying to keep control of Florida and the Africans who were really an important military force in their defense system. The uh, Spaniards said, look, you uh, you guys can take care of this uh, place. You can have it as your town, but you have to be willing to defend St. Augustine. And they were willing because many of them had wives and so on, uh, sons, daughters who were living in St. Augustine. So this was uh, a couple of hundred people, and they were the defense of St. Augustine uh, just at this Fort Mose at which the British were trying to come down. Uh, we're trying to invade and take over St. Augustine, so they were at the defense perimeter. And you mentioned that this Underground Railroad, rather than going north, but south, what were some of the in, uh, important stops uh, in that route? Or have the routes been established? Do we know where they are? Uh, <laughs> well, um, you, you, you've asked a, a, a very interesting question. Because when we think we think of the Underground Railroad, we think of the stations that we know about when people went north, and especially when they got well, you know, some of them were in the south and so on. We we know about those, and some of them went up into the free states, and people, white people and black people and Native American people, uh, hid the escaping slaves in their attics, in haylofts, and then moved them on. When they slaves headed south. That was a different story. You, you, you can't even use the same language because you didn't have safe houses. You just had people fleeing into, into occupied territory, into slave owner territory and having to get through it. And they were usually moving in large groups. It was like a, a moving or floating slave rebellion, more than one or two people fleeing. Now, it is true, in Texas, you did have Uh, people of African descent who were enslaved, fleeing into Mexico to such an extent, sometimes one or two or three, sometimes ten in in groups of ten or twenty and more, and they were fleeing to such an extent that by the Civil War you had a colony in Mexico of 3,000 people of African descent who were escaped slaves from the United States. You had others fleeing into Oklahoma and uh, and and by the way, when they're, uh, p- people are fleeing south, they're fleeing often to the Native American villages and towns that are established. They're taking them in. So once again, it's this alliance that is frustrating the efforts of the slaveholders to really have a, an airtight system that produces profits. And uh, those settlements uh, that were established in Mexico, the black settlements, are any of those still in existence today? 
Yes, I believe they are more in in in, in the southern uh, provinces of Mexico, the more southern Guerrero and so on uh, provinces of Mexico, because they wanted to get away from the border area there of the Rio Grande, because the Americans were constantly going over it. And uh, for example, uh, uh, there was a mass exodus of these uh, black and red Seminoles who were put in Oklahoma. And they picked themselves up in 1849, and they headed across Oklahoma into Texas. And with uh, slave-catching posses right after them, they crossed the Rio Grande, first their women and then their men, firing at the posses, and crossed over in the hundreds and hundreds and, uh, and settled there in northern Mexico. This was by 1850, because by that point they were being raided by whites who were trying to steal their children and their women and sell them as slaves. And this was, as I said, this was a freedom-fighting people. Matter of fact, I, I think I, I should say so people understand that the story of, of Africans and Indians, in a sense, is the story of our oldest underground railroad and our largest and longest-lasting freedom-fighting force and rebellion against the slave system because it went on for many, many years and took place in, in many locations throughout the United States. Okay, I want our callers to know that our lines are open. I believe we might have a caller or two. And uh, any callers on the line right now? Okay, we'll move on. But I want the callers to know that the lines are open for questions or comments for our guest. Sure. Historian William Katz. And the number is 347-324-5552. And um, tell us, who was Yanga? That's Y-A-N-G-A. Well, okay. He was one of the legendary leaders of slave rebellions in the very early period when Spain controlled the islands uh, of the Caribbean, and uh, he he was w one of the ones. There there were others that I I've, I've written about also uh, that are also important. There were <clears throat> there was Pope in 1680 who led a revolt of Africans and Native Americans out in Santa Fe that actually overthrew uh, Spanish rule for 12 years, and uh, the people of African Native American descent joined together, they chased out the Spaniards. In some cases, they spared their lives. In some cases, they they uh, they killed people who were fighting them, and they chased out the priests, and they went back to their original uh, religion. But there were uh, groups like that all over, and on the islands and so on. Yanga was, was one of them. Uh, there was a colony in, in Brazil, uh, that was led by a woman named Felipa Maria Arana. She was of African descent. It was in, her colony was in uh, northeast Brazil, and she fought the uh, Portuguese so successfully for so long they decided they couldn't conquer a people which were of this at that point of both African and Native American descent that uh, they decided to negotiate with her. And she won not only freedom for a people but trade relations. And um, and they marched ahead in peace, and of course there was the famous uh, uh, colony in 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 Brazil, <clears throat> the Republic, <clears throat> excuse me, of Palmares, 
that lasted for almost 100 years throughout the 17th century. <clears throat> that was a three-walled city of 10,000 people, and it was Native Americans and African Americans. Genga Zumba was their leader. His the title combined an African uh, word with a Tupi Native American word, and uh, that indicated the mixture of the two peoples. And they were able to hold off the uh, foreign invaders for, as I said, a hundred years and established this Republic of Palmares in now, Brazil. What was, that, what was that word you just used? Uh, Kengazumba? Yeah. What did that mean again? <clears throat> Hold on. The translation is great leader. Great leader. <clears throat> right. And there's an African word and a Native American word, and the two word one put together means great leader. And they lasted, as I said, for a hundred years. They had their own courts, their own systems of justice, their own cultures. They practiced various religions, African and Native American in origin, and uh, basically wanted to live at peace. Mm -hmm. Did any of those settlements, any of those uh, individuals in those settlements in Mexico, did any of those individuals get involved uh, in the Civil War between the states? <clears throat> well, I'm trying to think. The um, the president of Mexico was friendly with Abraham Lincoln. And uh, uh, his name will come to me in a, in a moment. But he he was of Native American descent, and he wanted to help Lincoln. But actually, he had problems of his own because in the middle of the Civil War, the French tried to invade Mexico and and establish its own puppet dictator, Maximilian, in in charge of this state. And uh, and, fi oh, and finally, uh, <clears throat> the Mexicans were able to defeat him, and he was executed by a Mexican firing squad uh, composed of people of African and Native American and, and Hispanic descent. In this relationship with Lincoln, were they attempting to make arrangements for resettlement of slaves as an option to the Civil War? Well, Lincoln always had considered that part of his program. It took him an awful long while to realize that it wouldn't work. But right up through the Civil War, he was hoping that the solution to the problem of slavery was to purchase the slaves from the slave owners, actually give them money, and persuade people who were freed to pick up and go to Africa or to some part of Mexico that might open their borders to them or to some part of the Caribbean that might welcome them. And uh, he even instituted uh, negotiations and sent representatives to various countries to see if he could work that out. But Did that uh, involved people... the... Uh... Did that involve the Dominican Republic? Did they I'm have not a role? sure whether I don't remember if it was the Dominican Republic. It I it was I think it was some other island there, but I, I don't remember what it was. Are there any museums or places of interest that our listeners could visit in Mexico that would shed some light on this history? 
I'm not sure. I haven't been to Mexico, so I, I, I couldn't speak on that. But actually, if you Googled African-American history and Mexico and museums, you put all that together, you'd probably turn up some because it's uh, the one thing that people in Mexico know is that they are a mixed people and that they are as much Hispanic and Native American and African as as a people can be. And so their heritage is very mixed, and uh, and that go, you know that goes back to that Vicente Guerrero, who is their president, and it goes back beyond that point. And what about? And, uh, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. Go. You go ahead. What about uh, places that are specifically in your book um, that our listeners might be able to visit or go into those areas? Okay, let's see. I have to, to think that out. <clears throat> well, there are museums of uh, related to the Underground Railroad, and they're now uh, all over the country. Matter of fact, I don't think I could even start to name them for you. They're in some of the main cities that were important, like Cincinnati, Philadelphia, and so on, uh, Many, and, and even New York has uh, places that were important as part of the Underground Railroad. And there are places even in, in the uh, South that have taken note of the fact that they played some relationship in the uh, the fight for liberty and, and for freedom in the United States. Okay. Well, in your book, um, who were, say, three of your uh, favorite rebels uh, oh, you okay. have done research on. <clears throat> Could you give us well, a little one, bit of detail on sure. maybe three of those individuals? Sure, I'll mention uh, three of them. One of them is this Francesco Menendez, who was actually the man who ran, ran this Fort Mose that we talked about. He negotiated uh, with the Mexicans. Uh, excuse me, he negotiated with the Spaniards in Florida and he worked that whole deal where they could uh, live and, at peace in uh, Fort Mose, and all they had to do was agree to defend St. Augustine, which they were well, very willing to do. Menendez had fought for years on the side of the Native Americans in Florida to keep the British out. He's one of my heroes. Another one is a, a really now, unknown was, woman. Excuse me? Was Menendez of African Native? And oh yes, he was of he was of African descent, fought with Native Americans for many years, and he was a commandant, the commandant of uh, Fort Mose. Another now, person that yes, being the commandant, then he was appointed to that position. Did he come up yes. through the ranks in the Mexican Army? Yeah, no, he fought. With, he he fought. No, I, I was mistaken when I said Mexico. I meant to say Florida. He fought in Florida okay, for Florida. many years on, on on the part, and the Spanish knew about his heroism, and they were very happy because he uh, he was a very good commander, and uh, his men had a lot of faith in him. Okay. Another person was uh, a woman named Isabel de Oliveira, and all we know about her was she was a black woman, African woman of African descent with Native American ancestry, and she was going to be leaving New Spain, which was Mexico, 
and in 1600 go on a trip to Santa Fe, along with a long, uh, huge Spanish expedition. And what she did was she walked into the office of the mayor of her town there in Mexico, and she had a she made a statement that she wanted him to uh, ratify and identify and put an official seal on. And she said simply, I am a free woman. I am of African and Native American descent. I am unmarried. I am going to Santa Fe. And this is a statement that I make so that no one will bother me. And she ends it with, I demand justice. Yes, and this woman, 16, this was at 1600. 1600. That's, 1600 is before anybody lands at Jamestown or Plymouth Rock or anything. This woman is making this first known protest in the New World by a person of color, by a woman of color, by a woman of African descent, and by a woman of uh, African and Native American descent. And it ends with those dramatic three words, I demand justice. Do we know that we if she ever got married, have children? We, we, I'm sorry. The sad part is we don't know anything about what happened to her after that. But we we know that she uh, she wasn't afraid to speak up. She wasn't afraid to present herself before the mayor, and she brought in uh, three other people of African and Native American descent to also sign her statement that she was telling the truth and that she was who she was. Okay. And the now third then, individual. Well, the third one, I'm going to uh, move to a uh, an, another uh, era. I'm going to talk about a man, a man named George Henry White. George Henry White was of African and Native American descent. And he wanted, uh, after the Civil War, he, he, oh, he was a slave, he gets free, <clears throat> and he goes into politics. He wants to help his people. He's, he starts out as a teacher, but he decides he, he is really a, a very great orator. He's a, a good reader. And he goes into politics, and he's elected to Congress twice from North Carolina's 2nd Congressional District, which was largely African-American at the time. And he goes into Congress at a point where he is the only person of African descent in the entire hundreds of people in the U.S. Congress, House and Senate. And it's at a time when the Ku Klux Klan types are riding high, when lynchings are rising, when black people are not only being discriminated against, but they're forced to become uh, uh, peasants under the control of whites as surely as their ancestors had been enslaved. And, uh, and various systems are in the South are clamping down and reducing his people. So there he is in Congress. And he, time after time, brings up the subject of how can this country carry on this kind of a campaign against its own citizens when it claims to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. the brave. And he and he actually, what he does that is so dramatic is in the year 1900, he, in January 1900, he introduces a bill to make lynching a federal crime. It's the first bill that's ever been introduced to make lynching a federal crime. 
and he is he speaks passionately about it. And into the bill is written that the punishment for anybody who participates in a lynching, mass lynching, or just there an individual lynches somebody, it's the death penalty. He said this is treason to the United States, and he should be treated that way. Well, I, I don't need to tell you that the bill didn't get anywhere because everybody else was there, and uh, the Southern senators were furious that he even introduced the bill. And the House, the Judiciary Committee, never even took it up. They just buried it. And then he gave a final speech in 1901 as he was leaving. Because he, he, and he, by the way, he never stayed away from controversial issues. He was a fighter all his life, and he gave this final speech. I have parts of it in Black Indians uh, that, that that one can find it there. And he says, "This is not the way you're going to make progress. This is not the way you're going to build a democratic country. Everybody deserves to be free. Everybody deserves the, the rights of opportunity, and so on." It's a very dramatic play. Once again, I can't say that people listen to him because I told you the makeup of the Congress at that time. But his exactly. bill was the first, first uh, anti-lynching bill ever proposed, and he and this is back in the year 1900. Excellent information. Excellent information. Uh, sounds like a very valuable book. Um, I can mention my website if people are interested in finding out more about the book and, and others. Yeah, why don't you give us that contact information, if you will. Sure. Uh, the, the website is www.williamlcats.com. That's williamlcats.com. Right. And uh, you, you can find uh, not only... Uh, Essays there about uh, black Indians, about my 40 other books, but you can even find some of the pictures that I've used. I use a lot of pictures because when I started writing these books back in the 1960s, I knew nobody would believe me if I just made statements. Mm -hmm. So I used, just as, as Leslie Gist does, I used pictures to make my point. Exactly. Now, you are also a consultant to the Smithsonian. Yeah, yes, I have been, yes. And uh, were you involved? I think, didn't they open up a museum of American Indian history of some sort? No, what, what, yeah, yeah, they have one. They have several. They have one even here in New York. But they, uh, what, what you're possibly thinking of is they have an exhibit um, of uh, called Indivisible that toured the country showing the relationship between Africans and Native Americans. That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, that's what I thought, right. Yeah, and, uh, that, it, yeah and they've done that exhibit. It has a lot of pictures in it, and it, it's, uh, you know, received a lot of publicity. Now, Mr. White, getting back to uh, George Henry White uh, and that uh, bill on lynching, uh, bill that passed, do we know if he passed any other uh, legislation? Uh, yeah, I don't have all of what he did in front of me, but he he stood up every time something happened. Well, let, let me take I, – I, he had some other bills, but what, what I want to get at is he was there on every issue. For example, when the United States got into the Spanish-American War and was fighting, it said, to free Cuba, free Puerto Rico, and all of that, 
he got up and he, he first of all fought. He said, first of all, if you're going into war and you're going to have black men fighting, which they were at the time, they were uh, enlisting black men. You also have to have black officers. So he brought up that issue. But then he brought up the other issue. He said, you're talking about going to free Cuba, uh, free uh, Puerto Rico. So what about freeing the, the people here? And he said, doesn't charity begin at home? So at each point, he's bringing up the main contradiction in this country that <laughs> tried to go abroad to fight back, for what it was not doing back at home. And that Spanish-American War, what was that, yes. 1896 or so? 1898, yes. Okay. And he, was, he was on every, every subject like that at each point. He te- and he, at one point he gave a speech just listing all of the things that black people had accomplished since slavery ended. A couple of banks they owned, merchant houses, uh, those that had served in Congress, inventors, school teachers, ministers, and so on. He took information that he knew the white public had no knowledge of and had no experience with. Are you familiar with uh, Attorney Buck Franklin out of Tulsa, Oklahoma? And also Attorney John Franklin? Franklin? Yes. He was known as what? Buck Franklin. John Hope Franklin? Well, I believe that he was related to John Hope. Are you familiar with Yeah, I was familiar with I was friendly with John Hope Franklin, and I were friends, yes. Now, but, um, um, no, go ahead. No, I, I don't think I know the gentleman that you mentioned. Okay, I think I've got it confused. Uh, locally, I think John Hope was known as Buck. Uh, can you go into a little bit of detail about your connection with uh, John Hope Franklin? Well, uh, first of all, he was one of my heroes because he was writing on this subject long before I came along, and his books were on my father's shelf and helped you know, develop my, my sense of the importance of history. And then when I began uh, producing a series of books for libraries, he was uh, one of my main consultants. We did a whole uh, series of books in which he was one of my uh, leading consultants. And he and I be- became friendly. We, you might say, almost like kissing cousins because we would talk from time to time. And he was very supportive of my work, and of course, I was lost in admiration for the work, the work that he had done over many years. All of his very, very important books. You know, in all the research you've done, going back to the early 1600s, and you've uh, reported on and documented a lot of history. Do you see anything going on today that um, that history is kind of repeating itself today? Well, that's that's a very good question, and I and I do take that up in the new edition of, of Black Indians that we've been discussing. That's one of the things I did in the new edition is is updated to 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 include it. And there are both some, some good things going on and some not so good things going on. First of all, on the on the good side of things, uh, Native Americans and African Americans have begun to uh, to recognize, as many of them had not for a long while that they have something in common. Just as they had something in common in fighting a foreign invader, they have something in in common in making this a more democratic country, a country 
that does not discriminate and does not uh, deny people opportunity uh, based on their skin color. And uh, that uh, that's coming together. I could give many instances of that. But, for example, the ones I give in the book talk about how the American Indian movement was very influenced by Malcolm X and the Black Power movement. And uh, in, uh, at the Louis, even Louis Farrakhan's famous uh, Million Man March on uh, in Washington had Native American speakers. It was a recognition that these two people are intimately involved, certainly politically. Uh, I was on a, a radio program one time uh, just before uh, Leonard Peltier, Native American, in prison unjustly, and Mumi Abu-Jamal in prison unjustly, talked and uh, gave supporting statements for each other as political prisoners. Um, I was actually on another program with Vina Deloria, the famous Native American historian who died a few years ago, and we were talking about the importance of the mixture of Native Americans and African Americans shaping this country and how people need to know this story. On the other hand, there are some court cases out in Oklahoma that are, are very sad to report, in which the Cherokee Nation, that I should say the leaders of the Cherokee Nation, and some of the leaders of the Seminole Nation are trying to disenfranchise their African-American members after all they did in the support of these nations. And these cases are winding through the court. And uh, I was pleased on that program with uh, Pro Professor Vina Deloria um, to, you know, denounce that thing and to point out how it flew in the face of the history of these two people cooperating and how that had been really the important history to follow. Oh, I'm sorry, I used the name Vina Deloria. It, the, the professor's name is Jack D. Forbes. He's the leading Native American historian who is an expert on African Americans and Native Americans working together. And His what he said on that program, his name Excuse is Jack me? D. Forbes. Jack, Professor Jack D. Forbes. He's written Forbes. a number of books, including on Africans and Native Americans. Okay. Go ahead, sir. Continue. Well, what he said that was so important, he, he, he pointed out, he said, how can these two people, you know, one say the other should leave, when you know, they've been together for years, and actually if you take the Seminole Nation, the Africans were really, in a sense, helped save that nation from uh, being overrun by the armed forces of the United States. And he said, how can you put people, throw people out it, uh, of your nation based on your, you, that these uh, Seminole leaders say, well, we're exerting sovereignty. And I remember he specifically used this example. He said the state of New Mexico and the state of New Jersey can't discriminate against people who say, on the basis that they have blonde hair or blue eyes or dark skins uh, because they have sovereignty. Everybody in the state is entitled to the protection and the rights the state offers, and that's true of the Native American nations. And those two particular tribes were um, exercising their treaty rights of 1866. I believe it's Well, they were actually violating. I have to tell you, they were violating because the, the, the Treaty of 1866 treaties said that the African members would be considered members of the nation. Exactly. It's in, and the nations it, were going to be and precisely. 
And also, by the way, they did not say that people who had European background had to leave the nation. It was just those of African descent. Exactly. So it's a ter- terrible thing to see such ugly discrimination that the na- these nations fought so uh, hard against all the years, you know, be questioned at this late point. Mm-hmm. Do you have any uh, relationships or connections to Benjamin Quarles? And his work and oh yeah, yeah, he was one of the when I edited this series of reprints in African American history, he was one of the uh nine professors that I had uh that were uh, advisors and members of my editorial board yeah no he was a he was a fine man, and his book on the uh his his essays and uh material on the Civil War and the American Revolution, the abolitionist movement are really important. He really hits hits the nail on the head. And what about William Steele's book? Well, I had the honor in that series that I edited and I've talked about of bringing that book out for the first time in history since it had been published in 1872. I brought out an edition through the New York Times um, in, in this uh, project for libraries we brought out William Stills, The Underground Railroad, and the year was 1968. Others have brought it out since then, but we were the first one. Our board with Benjamin Quarles and other uh, noted historians were able to do that. And who were some of those other noted historians? Well, let me see if I can remember their names. <clears throat> uh, let's see if I... It was, it was, it was quite a list of... Uh, of people that that I had, um, James M. McPherson was on it. Benjamin Quarles, uh, people who were the editors of the very famous book from 1939 called *The Negro Caravan*. I don't have the other names right in, in front of me. Oh, Ernest Kaiser of the Schomburg Collection was on. The director of the Schomburg Collection was on. Dorothy B. Porter of the Moorland Spingon Collection at um, in, in Washington. Uh, she was on. Sarah Jackson of the National Archives was one of the people on, and, and so on. We had about nine or ten people who were really the, the tops in their field, making suggestions, Professor Darwin T. Turner. There were nine of us, and eight of us were African-American. And who were the influences on your first work? Well, I was very influenced by W.E.B. Du Bois. I was very Mm -hmm. influenced by by John Hope Franklin. Uh, I was very uh, influenced by uh, a whole series of the the, uh, Benjamin Quarles, too. And uh, just a whole number of uh, people. I mean, I, I was influenced by the, the books I was reading by by, by William Still and uh, the, the these abolitionists. You know, Wendell Phillips, the white and the black abolitionists, because they 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 really laid it on the line. They didn't just write things down. Actually, the William Still book, if they had found William Still's manuscript, he he could have been arrested and uh, put in jail for years because it was illegal to do what he did, help slaves escape there in the Philadelphia station of the Underground Railroad. 
I mean, that that's courage. He, he wasn't writing a book. He was just, you know, he was just keeping notes that became a book in 1872. Who were some of the other abolitionists um, that impressed you? <clears throat> and do you think the schools today are covering that movement to the best of their ability, the abolitionist movement? Uh, no, I, I don't think they are. That's why I was pleased with the uh, uh, PBS series that ran uh, for about three or four uh, hours on the abolitionist movement because it was an attempt to put out there, you know, what the abolitionist movement was doing. And, of course, you know, they, they quite properly put Frederick Douglass, you know, in a, in a central role. I mean, the, the man was absolutely brilliant as a writer and as a speaker. He was a magnetic personality. I've actually uh, been working with his great, 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 great grandson uh, <clears throat> uh, for a, a year now who's trying to bring the work of Frederick Douglass and the fight against slavery into the new fight um, for against the new slavery of uh, young uh, people being seized in the, in the sex trade and sent all over the world. And um, uh, his name is Ken Ken Morris, a, a wonderful person. And he runs the Frederick Douglass Family Foundation. And Frederick, uh, go ahead, sir. I'm Fred, sorry. Fred, Frederick Douglass Family Foundation. It can be found on the internet, and it does all kinds of interesting work. And it tackles what he calls, quite rightly, the new slavery, in which young people are seized and uh, essentially imprisoned into uh, a new kind of slavery. That's the sex traffic that's been going on all over the world. So you two guys are working together, are collaborating. Is there a book coming out, forthcoming? <laughs> At this point, the work is not toward a book, actually. Although we did speak, we... Uh, Frederick, you know, there's a Frederick Douglass home, by the way, that can be visited in Anacostia, Washington, that has that was the last home of Frederick Douglass, where where he died in the 1890s, and uh, Ken and I spoke at the 50th anniversary. This was just uh, about eight months ago of that becoming part of the National Park Service and so on, and it's a very well-run museum that people uh, can visit. And uh, uh, to, to answer your question, I said there was no book coming out because primarily what uh, Ken and his foundation are trying to do is reach school systems throughout the country with a curriculum that teaches about the anti-slavery movement and then teaches young people, say in junior high, how to be careful not to get swept up in this new slavery. And our listeners can go to Frederick. Douglas Family Foundation. Yes. Uh, website. Yes, yes. You could, if you Google it, it'll come up as a website, right? Now we had the pleasure of uh, interviewing uh, Kent here on um, the Gist of Freedom. Oh, uh, good. Talk to us briefly about five, six, five, ten of your books that you would. Um, Highly recommend to our reader. I know you'd recommend them all, but <laughs> you're talking about... to the author. <laughs> exactly. But five or ten that would be, if our listeners could only afford five or ten of those books, which ones would uh, should they pick up? Well, 
Well, let, let, let me put it this way, rather than uh, you know, my, my giving my view on it. I'm quite proud of, of my books. But if people go to my website, WilliamLKatz.com, they can click on any of the books and read about them. Because it really depends on what the reader is interested in. Some people may not be interested in black Indians. Or they might be interested in my book, Black Women of the Old West. Or my book, The Black West. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, it depends what what people's specific interests are. I cover a lot of different phases of of the subject, and I have some uh, more. I have uh, an eight volume series on uh, a history of multicultural America that talks about all of the people, people of color and people not of color, immigrants and so on, and women in particular who've been left out of the history books. So it okay, really well, depends on what what's one in, one is interested in. Tell us about uh, some of these. Uh, you said black women of the West? Yeah, black One women of the, of the Old West. Of the Old West? Well, tell us about two or three of those women <laughs> that stand okay. out for you. Well, uh, Black Women of the Old West was really a, a, a fun book. It's largely a picture book. And uh, it was very well, I will say this, it very well uh, reproduced uh, in the hardcover edition as it first came out. And you had people like Mary Fields from Cascade, Montana, who comes out to Cascade, Montana in 1882, works for a Catholic mission. She's about six foot and 200 pounds of trouble. And uh, no, nobody kind of uh, steps on her toes. And, and she gets in a gunfight with a uh, white cowpuncher there. By the way, I don't know whether you know it, but uh, these cowpunchers were, were terrible shots. They all carried guns, but they couldn't hit anything. Anyway, nobody got hurt, but she got fired. So what does she do? She goes into town, and she uh, opens a laundry, and some men, you know, bring in their laundry, and she gets it done. And one guy comes, and he picks it up. He refuses to pay. He probably said to himself, what can a woman do about that? Well, he found out. She traipses after him, taps him on the shoulder. When he turned around, she laid him out with a right cross to the jaw dusted her hands off, said his bill's been paid in full, and goes back to the laundry. This woman, in her 60s, delivers the U.S. mail in Cascade, Montana. I don't know if you know it, but it goes down to 30 degrees below zero there. Real and cold. she drives a stagecoach, and she's known to history as Stagecoach Mary. I mean, that's just one example. I, I, uh, I, I didn't want to go on because I didn't think we were going to be on this long. I'll be happy to continue another time. Well, one other question. You said that sure. Dr. Shabazz loved the book. Uh, what was your relationship, or what is your relationship to Dr. Well, I, I, what it was was she had gotten a copy of the book, Dr. Shabazz, and she invited me up and interviewed me on WLIB radio when it came out. And as we started the interview, she looked across the table at me. She said, this is one of the most interesting books I ever read. But that, that started things off nicely. So we talked about a number of the women in the book. And by the way, Lucy Parsons uh, was in there and uh, Stagecoach Mary and a whole bunch of others. And and uh, she, she I mean, liked it so much that a few months later she called me up again and said, can I come back? She wanted to cover the, the book again. And we did. She she was a really good interviewer. She was tough. She asked some hard questions that uh, she pushed me. It was very it was very enjoyable. Yeah, and I uh, apologize for us going a little bit over here, but you've been so full of information. 
and uh, I've really enjoyed uh, learning from you, and I'm sure that our friends um, on Facebook um, enjoyed it as they demanded that we <laughs> speak with you. Oh, good. And get you on the show. Uh, so your work is uh, very well known, and uh, with over 40 books, it should be, and uh, hopefully more of our listening audience will will get involved with your your work and, and learn this history, this vital history uh, that you've shared with us this evening. Uh, do you have any uh, closing remarks, uh, any other documentaries that you would suggest for our audience? Well, let me let me just close on on this note. You know, since you know we, we've gone over, and and you know, if you're interested, I'd be happy to come on again. You know, and talk if you want to spend some time talking about Black Women of the Old West or the Black oh, yeah. West or, or yeah. you know other books. I, I'd be happy to come on. I didn't mean to you know cut it short, but I you know I had been told I'd only be on for a half hour, so I didn't come all oh. prepared. You know, to go on the other field. But the other thing I wanted to say is I wanted to thank. Uh, Leslie Gist for what, what she's done in her website. I mean, people have to look at the the pictures and material that she's putting out there. They're they're really important. They they tell a story, and of course, I identify with it because she uses pictures just as I do to tell the story because they're so dramatic. You know, you can say, "Oh, somebody's you know full of nonsense." They're not really uh, telling it, but you can't refute those pictures. You can't say they don't exist. You can't say those people aren't doing what they're doing. So I admire your website, and I, I wish you best. And once again, I refer people to my website if they want to find out about my books. And, uh, you know, I, there's a lot to read on my website, too. I mean, I have a zillion essays up there. You don't even have to buy anything. You can just read an essay on this or that subject that uh, interests you. And uh, would you and give it, them that, uh, uh, that email or Web page address one more time. Sure. It's William L. dot com. William L. K. A. T. Z. dot com. And you'll find that there are even some videos up there of a talk I gave on the Underground Railroad that ran south. Uh, in uh, I gave it in Florida about eight months ago. Uh, there are essays, there are pictures. There's a, there's a lot up there that uh, I think people will find something they they like if if they're following Leslie Gist's website they're going to like what I have up to. Well, again, um, Mr. Katz, uh, I apologize for keeping you over, but uh, you've had no emails, no no, no problem. I'm sure, uh, our listeners have been. I've read a book or two of yours, and it looks like and I'll have to go in and read all forty of them now. Um, Really I don't think you should that. impose that on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Could you hang on just another minute? I think we have a caller. Any callers sure. out there? Go ahead, caller, if you're on the air. Hello. Um, yes. My name is Dr. Cherry, and I'm calling from Long Beach, California. And I've been following you from time to time, and each time I you know, bring out my family um, information, trying to follow um, the history that you're airing. And it's um, this evening, Mr. Katz has said something very um, uh, related to information that I have right here in my hands. And he was speaking about the Indian tribes, how they uh, migrated from, you know, the southern parts and ended up in Oklahoma Territory. And um, I have records here 
where it was saying that they were actually at one time they were trying to get these Indian territories um, um, admitted to the Federal Union as the state of Sequoia. Mm -hmm. And this was back, um, I guess, somewhere around November 16, 1907. But what they did is they went on ahead and joined them all up together, lumped them all together as the state of Oklahoma. And the other thing that you spoke about, Mr. Katz, is how you were – Surprised how some of the um, Indians um, did not want the African people to um, become part of their nation, so to speak, or citizenship. And I actually have a letter here um, from the United States Department of the Interior, from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and it is basically saying just what you said. Um, Uh If I may, if I could read a portion of this, just it's five lines. And it says, your letter of February 21st regarding the land allotted to John D. Stewart, Choctaw, and it gives the roll number, 15772, Mm -hmm. has been received following the act of May 27, 1908. And I don't know what 35 uh, stat 312 means, but I'm sure it's relevant. But it says, the properties and affairs of members of the five civilized tribes of less than half-blood Indian Become, became unrestricted and no longer under the jurisdiction of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So I thought it was very interesting how you um, were able to do research and come up with this information where now it's public. You made it public uh, knowledge. And with mm-hmm. me still doing some research of my own family history, I have bits and pieces. And, you know, I also have a letter here from the United States of America um, signed by Woodrow Wilson. Um, but I'm, like I said, I listened to the um, the air to to the, the history of the, the African uh, Americans and also the Indians because that is my history. That's my culture, and so um, it's really been a great honor to know that this is tied into history, especially when a researcher of yourself. Um, as the one speaking of it, and I have um, letters that's validating mm-hmm. what you're saying. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Information caller. Let me just mention one one thing, in that the the, the, the caller is is an, an example of this mixture. She's identified herself, and I can tell you that something like ninety to ninety five percent of African-American families today have a Native American branch in their family tree. It is an important part of history that she's affirming. Yes. Yes, and the the, uh, state of Sequoia that she was mentioning was in reference to George Sequoia Gist, who um, Ah, was creator uh of the Cherokee alphabet. uh, Right, oh, right, yes, okay. Five civilized tribes wanted to start uh, come in as an Indian state, and it would be the state of Sequoia. And um, again, he was the creator of the right. Cherokee alphabet. Right. And uh, and uh, Leslie Gist also has information in her book. Uh, the Gist of Freedom is still mm-hmm. fake, and it's available online. Uh, let me mention uh, let me mention one other 
historian to look into. It's Professor Taya Miles. Oh, yeah. She is, she is the leading authority on this today. She has a MacArthur uh, grant to do research, and she's really digging in it in great depth in, into this. And there are people digging into it uh, besides myself. So, I mean, this is an ongoing thing. And I'm very pleased that we even had a listener that called in and uh, let us know that she's digging into it, you know, in terms of her family. I think we have another caller on the line. Are you there, caller? Um, are you referring to me? Yes. Yes, I am. And um, I'm, I'm also, I've uh, had the pleasure of being able to speak with my great-grandmother for many, many years about her history and ancestry, and I've been researching um, our line, and it, it's it's um, it's overwhelming to me to know that it almost seems as if there was a consorted effort to destroy this information, not just outside of the black community, but within the black community. Um, I I hear individuals who refer to their Native American heritage as being ridiculed because they have darker skin, um, um, you know, and it's just a, amazing to me that um, so much of this information is available and is being looked into, and so many of us who have searched for this information are not aware of it, so I, I applaud this um, the station and also Mr. Katz for bringing this information to light. We appreciate the call, uh, caller. Thank you. Uh, caller from area code 434, your line is open. Area code 434, your line is open. Okay, well, maybe they have moved on. Well, it sounds like we should do uh, more of this some other time. Yeah, the board really lit up there um, in terms of callers uh, calling in. There seems to be a lot of interest. And if you are anywhere on target, about 90% of Africans have some Native American ancestry, then, yes, there's a lot of uh, mm -hmm. lot of interest out there. And we did experience some technical difficulties. I'm sorry uh, for those callers that did not get in. But we got kind of overwhelmed, and uh, so we'll bring Mr. Getz back at a future date and uh, talk some more about this. Mr. Getz, you get the last word. <laughs> well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on and for hitting me with such interesting questions. I'd love to come back on again. Uh, Leslie Gist and I are beginning to talk about things where we might be helpful to one another. And if being on your program is a help, I'd be delighted to come on again. Great. Thank Appreciate you very it. much. Okay, good night. Okay, good night. Good night. And good night, everyone. I'm your host.